Our text for the sermon is in Luke 18, Luke 18, 15 through 17. Luke 18, 15. And they were bringing even their babies to him, to Jesus, so that he would touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, we... Ask that as we look into your word, that you will give us hearts to see and hear what you have to say to us and prepare our hearts, even as we move through the sermon, for the sacrament that's before us uh, today. We'll praise you for it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I told you we were going to be talking about kids we're going to be talking about basically discipling our, ch- our children. And, but one of the things I'm going to run into is that next week we're having Hope Sunday. So I'm going to cut off and do a sermon on hope. And then the next week we'll do a sermon on the Reformation. And then we'll get right back to this. And then we'll probably run into Christmas and some of these things. So we'll keep plowing through, uh, hopefully, uh, information and sermons on how to deal with our children, how to disciple our children in the midst of this time of the year. But as an Orthodox Presbyterian church, we baptize two groups of people. We first baptize adults, or we baptize young people as well, who make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. We baptize young people, we baptize adults who repent of their sins, who demonstrate a desire to lead a holy life and the desire to be members of the church. And so in our church, when a person makes a credible profession of faith, they come in front of the congregation. And according to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32 through 33, Jesus says this, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, when a person makes the vows, we have five vows. We talked about those last week. When a person makes the vows and says yes to the questions put in front of them, that person is then baptized. Taking discipleship seriously for an adult, that's what it looks like. A person professes their faith in Christ. Um, Some of these guys can tell you, if you want to talk to them, how long I spent with some of their family members before they do this. So they make their, they talk to me, we, we prepare, they make a confession of faith. If it's an adult who's never been baptized, then they come and they are baptized. And then the rest of their lives, they seek to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, all of His commandments with a devotion in their hearts to Him. So the question, though, we've been looking at is, what about our children? What does it mean to take our children seriously when it comes to discipleship? Now, we can all say in an informal way, when a child is born, when the baby's born, every parent knows at that moment that they need to take that child seriously. 
But solemnly, we have an event that takes place in the church. Informally, the child's born. You hold a baby in your arms and you know, this kid, I need to take care of this kid. I need this serious business. But now, in front of the congregation, solemnly, we come and we baptize this infant. And when we do this, we, we make vows. There's four vows we make. And it's just like the other, uh, not too many weeks ago, when I stood in front of this, you guys would really enjoy this, uh, a, a wedding event taking place in an almond orchard with the trees almost hitting me in the face and um, all the greenery and all the rest. And we got chairs out in the middle of it all. And I told these young people, I said, you know, guys, you're making vows today. Do not make these vows and not mean them. And when we come to make vows to baptize our children, this is not a time, and I'm, I'm going to say this and make fun of, make, let Phil laugh for a second, but we're not doing it to keep up with the Joneses. We're not doing it because it's cute. We're not doing it because it's sentimental. We're not doing it because we think we're, it's cool, although it, it's kind of cool. I love it. But we're doing these things. We make these vows, and we want to make these vows, and we want to mean these vows because God holds us to our oaths that we make to Him. And so we come and we make these vows. And these four vows go something like this. And I'm going to give one of them in full. The first vow is we acknowledge that our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore subject, subject to condemnation. Yet they are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace. And as children of the covenant, they are to be baptized. Now I'm going to discuss that at the very end of the sermon. So hold on to your hats for that one. The second vow is this, is in a condensed form, we promise to teach our children diligently our holy Christian faith. Now that means that going back to question number one, we are going to teach our children that unhappy truth that they are conceived and born in sin. Psalm 51. We're going to teach our children that sin separates them from God. We're going to teach our children that the water that's put on them is a portrait of Jesus' blood that needs to wash over their soul just as that water washes over their body and cleanses them of dirt. We're going to teach them that they need to put their trust in the blood of Jesus for salvation. So we as parents, when we make this vow, we are vowing to be evangelist, evangelist in our homes, and we are going to teach our children that their salvation is not based on the fact that they have Christian parents, and their salvation is not based on the fact that they are active in a church, and their salvation is not based on the fact that water has been put on their heads, but their salvation is based only on the finished work of Jesus Christ. They have to receive that by faith. The third vow is we pray we vow to pray regularly with and for our children and bottom line to be godly examples to them. And so here is something very important. The primary example of godliness is mom and dad. Y'all hear that? The primary example of godliness is mom and dad. The primary teachers in the home, mom and dad. How many... How many hours? I, there's, there's this, what we're doing right now is very important. Right now what we're doing is obeying the fourth commandment. We are coming. We are standing before God. We are worshiping before God. There's nothing like it. Everything we do is accentuated. Everything we do is heightened. Everything we do is enhanced. We sing a little louder. We listen a little better. We, we talk. We, we confess our faith. We do all these things. Great stuff. How many hours a week do you do this? 
If you come one hour and 30 minutes a week because you live far away. 52. You didn't miss a week. 52 times 90 minutes. That's it. How many hours are you with your parents, kiddos? How many hours are parents are you with your kids compared to in the church with the body of Christ? Not very many. You are the primary means of their spiritual training. Do not ever think that what we're doing is not important because it is of supreme importance. But you are the one who is going to commit yourself to create in your home a a conversation about Jesus Christ, about Christian faith. You're going to be the one training their souls. Yeah, call the preacher. He'll come over and he'll be with you as much as he can. But there's a whole bunch of you. Mom and dad, you are saying, I'm going to be an evangelist. I'm going to be the teacher. I'm going to teach them how to pray, show them how to pray, be an example of godliness. I'm going to train their souls, what it means to put faith in Christ, what it means to repent of sin, what it means to confess my sin, what it means to be forgiven of sin, what it means to start over again when I've been forgiven. This is you. The fourth commandment is sort of like this. It says that we're going to nurture, we're going to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord with a view to them putting their own faith, appropriating Jesus Christ for themselves. Why do we baptize our children? Why do we take these serious vows before God to disciple our children? Well, our Reformed heritage is solely based on the Scriptures in both the Old and New Testaments. And we find the Bible telling us things like this. Psalm 127, verse 3, Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from Him. Psalm 128, verses 3 and 4, Your sons will be like olive shoots who sit around your table. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, article 2, just giving a giving a little commentary on what the Bible says, the visible church, which is also Catholic and universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, the visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess true religion and of their children. Our confession views the visible church is made up to consist of those who profess, don't get too hung up on true religion. It just means true religion, faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means. And made up of their children. The children are incorporated into the visible body of Christ. If this is the case, and we believe it is, if this is the case, it mandates that parents are to recognize this status before God. God gives the child a status before Him. If that's true, then all parents are to give the privilege of of the child is to have the sign and the seal of the covenant placed on them. And that means that every parent is obligated to bring their child for baptism. By virtue of the parent's faith, the parent or the parent's faith, we sometimes we have one parent, by virtue of their faith, that child has a, has a standing before God. We're going to see in the end here in the sermon, 1 uh, Corinthians seven fourteen that children are holy. It doesn't mean they're saved. It means they're set apart because they belong to believing parents. And because they're set apart by the, by the faith of the parents, that means that they are, have the privilege of the Lord's, I mean, not the Lord's Supper, but baptism. And we as parents are to bring our children for it. The Westminster Confession of Faith, article, uh, chapter 28, article 5 reads, It's a great sin 
And I'm going to translate here the word contemn. It means to treat with contempt or neglect the ordinance of baptism. You and I, if we acknowledge, if we acknowledge that our children have a status before God, and we believe, the Bible teaches this without, beyond all controversy, if you acknowledge this, but you don't bring your child for baptism, then you are either being negligent or you could have a problem with your attitude. It could mean that you're treating baptism with contempt. There's been times in the past where I've had to go to parents and remind them, hey, we need to baptize the baby. Let's don't be negligent. If we believe this, then this is what we do. The seriousness of a Christian child's standing before the Lord, the right of the child to be baptized, and the obligation of the parent to bring the child for the sacrament is demonstrated in both the Old and in the New Testaments. Now, I want to give you a survey of in the Old Testament. I want to give you a survey of this in the New Testament. So hold on to your britches because we're going to get going. And I leave, left a whole bunch out. Okay. But it all begins with Abraham. Now, we talked about this last week. We know that Abraham's a believer. Chapter 15, Genesis 15, he believes in God and God credits to his account righteousness. And then God comes to him and says, I'm going to give you a sign and seal of the covenant and it's going to be circumcision. So Abraham is to place the sign and the seal on himself and then he's to place the sign and seal on all the members of his household. And so he goes out and he's circumcised. And then he goes out and he circumcised a 13-year-old named Ishmael. Then he goes out in Genesis 22 and he circumcises an eighth-day-old kiddo named Isaac. And he circumcises all the men in his household. So what we see here is the basis for applying the sign of the covenant to a 99-year-old, to a 13-year-old, to an eighth-day-old And it was simply to be done because God said to do it. Okay? Why are you doing this, Abraham? Abraham would say, God told me to do it. And you, as a a person in the new covenant, people are going to come to you and say, Why are you baptizing that infant? Why are you baptizing that 12-year-old? Why are you doing this? And you're going to say, Because God told me to do it. (laughs) We're not baptizing our children, presuming they're elect. We're not baptizing our children, presuming they're regenerate. We're not baptizing our children because we think water is going to save them. We're baptizing our children because we believe God commands us to do it. When an adult or a young person, as we've talked about before, just to rehearse a little bit, when that person comes and and sits down with the session, the session, again, I always seem to say this, but I'm going to say it again, it, it seems scary, it seems frightful. Oh no, I've got to go sit and talk to those men. But it's not scary. You can ask my daughters. It's not too scary. And, and usually, usually, to, to, usually it, before somebody comes and sits with a session, usually they've sat down and they've talked to me for at least, usually maybe three, three to more hours. I, I, I'm not going to bring somebody in for a booby trap, guys. Don't ever think you're going to get uh, sideswiped. There's no bait and switch here. We want to make you comfortable. We want you to come in. We're going to ask you questions. We're going to ask you to tell, tell us what your testimony is. How much You can't get better than that. People come in. They tell us about coming to Christ. Tell us about repentance and faith. We ask them a few questions. Usually it's a wonderful time. And they make a credible profession of faith. But the session doesn't recommend a person 
to come as a member of the, of the congregation based on their presumed election. We don't recommend that they come and be a member of our church based on their presumed regeneration. What we recommend is a credible before you profession of faith, which means they are convincing us. They've been convincing. They understand not. Guys, you don't have to understand everything, all the books. But what you have to understand is who is Jesus, what Jesus came to do, why he came to do it. I have sinned. I need a Savior and all those basic facts. And when, you, when a person makes a credible profession of faith, they, their name is submitted before the congregation. They make their vows and then they're baptized. And an adult is baptized. Why? Because God says to do it. <laughs> now, under the old covenant... The covenant status of children was taken so seriously in Genesis seventeen fourteen. This is what God says to Abraham. Any uncircumcised male, Abraham, who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's a serious thing to be part of the covenant community and to have the sign and seal in all the family. Now, Here's, here's another serious point to be made in Exodus 4, 22 through 26. Now, this is not going to be in the um, movie, The Prince of Egypt, and this is not going to be in the movie, The Ten Commandments. But this is in the Bible. This is in that movie. In Exodus 4, 22 through 26, God is bringing uh, Moses to go into Egypt and set his people free. He's the mediator. He's going to set his people free from Israel. But there's just a problem. The Bible says in these verses that the Lord came out after Moses to kill him. Oh no, why? Why is God coming after Moses to kill him? Isn't he going to be the one who delivers the people from Egypt? Well, God came out because Moses had neglected to circumcise his own son. And so Zipporah circumcises the son and the Bible says the Lord let Moses alone kind of serious business. God claims our children and they have the right, they have the right to the sign of the covenant sign and seal in the Old Testament and the New Testament and then they are to be brought for it and they are to be taught after those days all the faith that God has, t- has given to us. If I stopped and I gave to you an Old Testament survey of all the times where children, the parents, and in the presence of God, all the family members are there. There's elders and there's chief, chief men and there's leaders and there's all these men and there's women and there's little ones. And there's nursing babies. And even when the prophets are calling the people to repent, the little ones and the babies are right there along with the moms and the dads. The seriousness of the child's status and the privilege of baptism and our as parents' obligation to bring them for baptism, it is in the Old Testament and is also in the New Testament. This is one thing that, that really is helpful to help a person who is least to try to understand where we're coming from. If the status of the child changes, if the privilege of the child to receive the sacrament changes, If the obligation upon the parent changes, it needs to change in the New Testament. You need to find a revocation. You need to find a repeal. You need to find a direct word that says this is to stop discontinued. But what you don't find 
is anything except continuation. Any practice that's been going on for almost 1,900 years since the days of Abraham, we mark him about 1,800 B.C., right, student in in, uh, seminary? About 1,800 B.C., it needs to be revoked. It's been going on since then, but there's no revocation. In fact, there are definite indications that everything continues with the children and with the small children being receiving the covenant sign of a circumcision, which now becomes baptism. God continues to work within the solidarity of the family unit. When the reformers in the 1500s were challenged by people and say, you need to give us scriptural proof as to why you baptize those babies and those small kids. This is what they would say. Here's the, it would ask a question back. Where in the Bible does it say that the fundamental covenant relation is to be broken in the new covenant. Show us where we're supposed to stop. We're just going to continue to do what's been going on. And so we come to our text in Luke 18, 15 through 17. And if you want a little marker uh, in your mind, if you're taking notes, you can just write the little children in Jesus. The little children in Jesus. Verse 15, And they were bringing even their babies to Him, Jesus, so that He would touch them. Who's the they? who's the they? Well, if you go back up in your text, Jesus has just been preaching about a parable to the, to the, about the Pharisee and the publican. And so there's publicans, listen, there's publicans who are beating their breasts and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And so there's people coming to Jesus. They are repenting and they're putting their faith in Jesus and being justified by Jesus. And they have children. And what are those children doing? Well, those children are being brought to Jesus. Do you see that? The children are being the children of believing parents are being brought to Jesus. And look at the next part of the verse. But when his disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. <laughs> hey, hey, can you imagine? Can you see these guys and these little kids? Hey, Jesus has got more important stuff to do than mess with y'all little people. <laughs> can y'all see that? I mean, I can see that. Hey, Jesus is big boy, and um, he's doing big boy stuff. And Jesus says, uh, call them. He said, Jesus called for them saying, permit the children. Permit these children of parents who are responding to me by faith to come to me. And do not hinder or prohibit them. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God belongs to little children who belong to believing parents. Something's being said here. There's two things. Now, I want you to mark this down here. Jesus is saying two things here. And we need to be very clear on the the two things. Here's the first one. Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So there is some distinction of these little ones who belong to believing parents. That's the first thing he's saying. The second thing he says is in verse 17. He says this in verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Another thing that's being said here is this. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, if you want to see it, 
if you want to receive it, you have to be like a little child depending on a parent. Just like a child depending on a parent, you have to depend upon Jesus for your salvation. There's two things. Let's look at the second one first. Verse 17. In order to receive the kingdom of God, you must become like a little child. Now, if you go and read Matthew 18, parallel passage, you're going to find that Jesus takes a child and he sits the child in his lap and he holds this child in his lap. And all those big boys, all the disciples, all the guys who have big, big, the big stuff are sitting there worrying and, and, and trying to see who's the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus says, look, boys, look, fellas. You need to understand that even you won't enter the kingdom of God unless you become like this child who is totally dependent on what are children? Children are totally dependent on mom and dad. They're totally dependent on mom and dad for their protection, for their food, for their clothes. They, they, they don't go buy instruments by themselves. Mom and dad buy instruments for them, right? If you want a pen, mom and dad goes and buys a pen, right? So you've got to depend on Jesus the same way a child. That's what Jesus is saying to the big boys. He's saying that. Then he turns around. Now go back to the first part of the verse. But he's saying a different truth in verses 15 and 16. He's saying that these little ones who belong to the believing parents who are responding to Jesus and his preaching, he makes it clear that they're not excluded from the visible church. They're not excluded from membership in the visible church. These kids, he welcomes them, he blesses them, he includes them, even though they do not comprehend it. Even though they don't understand it. They don't know what's going on necessarily. But they are to be included as members of the covenant community who, going back to verse 17, mom and dad need to teach them. They too, even though... As they grow up, they too need to depend on Jesus Christ just like a little child for their own, uh, for, for their own salvation. Let's go to the second text, Acts 2, 38 through 39. And if you want a title, the promise is for you and your children. Now, on the day of Pentecost, we talked about this last week, but I'm going to hit it from a different angle a little bit. We see that the Apostle Peter is preaching Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And this is what he says. He says, what you see, the Spirit being poured out right now on all flesh, is what Joel spoke about in chapter 2 of his prophecy. And he says this, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Peter says this, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, adults, who are believing in Jesus Christ, whom you just put to death a few days ago. This promise is for you and for your children. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for those adults who are repenting and believing. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is for the children who do not immediately comprehend, do not immediately possess by faith. What's being promised? Did y'all get that? Profess by faith. It's, it's something that they must uh, profess by faith, but they receive the promise of it. And these children, they, they in the future, they must learn to appropriate what is promised. They must learn to take it by faith. And so here we see the apostle is proclaiming what God's ancient promise was to Abraham 
and to his children. It continues. It is extended even to us in the New Testament. Here's the third text, Acts 16, 15. And if you want a title, it would be household baptisms. Circumcision was the requirement for a household in the Old Testament. Who got, who got um, circumcised in the Old Testament? 99-year-old, 13-year-old, 8-day-old, all the members of his household. Who gets baptized in the New Testament? Well, let's take a look. In Acts chapter 16, verse 15, Luke recounts the story of a woman named Lydia. And all the, all the little kids said, Lydia sells what? What does Lydia sell? Lydia sells purple fabric. And if you don't know how to say your B, all the little kids say purple fabric. They turn their B into a V. So she's a seller of purple fabric. And so there she is with her friends and she goes down to a river and they're all praying and the Apostle Paul and company go down there. He begins to preach the gospel. The Bible says this, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the Apostle's message. It says that she believed and that she followed that belief. She was, she was baptized, she and her household. The chief point here is Lydia's faith response. She believed... She was baptized, and then her household was baptized by virtue of her faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here comes the final text. And I just, I, 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 I want to say this, 1 Corinthians 7.14. Listen really carefully to what's being said, because I think sometimes people don't, they, they read into something that's not there. When we say holy, we don't mean necessarily that a person is saved. Um. That clock's holy. See that clock over there? It says 11 o'clock. I'm trying not to keep you all too long, but see that clock? That clock's holy. You know why it's holy? It's set apart. It's made just for looking up there and seeing what time it is. And so I, I want you to listen to the words very carefully. Here's 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now listen to the, everything I've been saying. I'm just, I told my wife last night. I told my kids last night. Everything I'm saying, I'm going to say it over and over. The whole sermon. Over and over. The same stuff. Over and over. Listen and see if you don't hear it. So Paul is concerned about couples who are married. During these days, one of them becomes a Christian and one of them's not. Oh no. What do we do now? Well, Paul wants those couples, those married couples, he wants the believer to know their marriage is holy. Their marriage is set apart by the believing spouse. Their marriage is being sanctified by the believing spouse. What does that mean? Well, it means that this believing spouse has a sanctifying effect on the unbelieving spouse. It doesn't mean that the believing spouse saves the unbelieving spouse. It means the believing spouse has a sanctifying effect on the unbelieving spouse. She, he acts like salt. She or he acts like light in the relationship, in the home. What will that person do who's a Christian in a home with an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife? What will that person do? Well, they do Christian stuff. They read their Bible. And they will seek to obey commandments. And they will go to church. And so as they do these things, this sanctifies, has a sanctifying effect on the unbelieving 
spouse. And the same thing is true when it comes to a believing parent. If you have two parents, let's just be really blunt, two parents, they don't go to church. Do, do, do those parents have any sanctifying effect on their children? No, they do not. They're outside the covenant. They're outside the church. But if one parent becomes a Christian, that one parent gives that child in that home a status before God. That one parent will seek to teach that child Christian things. Teach that child about baptism. Teach that child about Jesus Christ, faith and repentance and so on. That one thing, that one parent will have a sanctifying effect on that child. And that parent, and sometimes folks, look, I'm just, this is really off script here. But sometimes when a parent becomes a believer and the un, un, there's an unbeliever involved, this gets real sticky. It gets real difficult sometimes. And so sometimes they call the preacher and we have to talk it over. And I've talked with a woman who had a, had a uh, she was a believer and her husband was not a believer. And I had to talk them through it all. And he finally allowed this. He, he, we worked it out. We had to spend time doing it. It worked out. He actually stood up in front of everybody with her, with her while the baby was baptized. We had to work that out. We had to explain to the congregation that he's not a Christian, but he was up there with his wife, supporting his wife and what she was doing. But do you see what a sanctifying effect it would be on a non-believing husband? For she, she's bringing that kid up here in front of the church to have a baptism, and she's going to live for God. That's what we're talking about. That child has a status before God. That child had the right to baptism, and that mom brought that child for baptism. Well, in conclusion, the Old Testament and New Testament teach us that our infants and our small children of a believing parent or believing parents, they are recognized before God. They have the privilege or the right for to baptism. And a parent or parents are obligated to bring them for the sign of the covenant. We believe our children are included in the covenant of grace and they are to be baptized. We do not believe the waters of baptism save them, but we do believe the waters of baptism preach the gospel to them. So what are we to do as parents? Well, we have to be discipled by Jesus Christ ourselves. If we would be instruments in God's hands, we must be discipled by Jesus Christ ourselves. If you want to be helpful to your children, then you need to bring them to the worship service. You need to make sure that they're part of a church service where they hear the Word of God, I hope, from cover to cover every time they come in the building. You ought to be, they ought to just be pounded with Scripture. They ought to be pounded with truth. And then you go home and you do what we've said all along. You read your Bible. You pray and you talk to your children about these things in the morning, in the noontime, and at the evening. You and I, we must be discipled. And we must teach them that they have a special relationship to God because of our faith. And that they have the right to be brought for baptism. And we did it. <laughs> we brought them. We, we, we did what we were obligated to do. And we made these vows and we took them seriously. And so now we are going about the business of, of teaching them what this water that was poured on their heads means. I talked to one of the girls the other day. 
And I said, I'm trying, I'm trying to make, I'm trying to get this stuff across. I'm going, I said, no. So, if you finish volleyball practice and you go get a shower, why do you get a shower? And she said, she said, to get the stink off. I said, see, the other day I mowed the grass and I got a shower to get the dirt off, but you just to get the smell off, right? I said, that's what baptism preaches, to get the stink of sin off the soul. Do you understand? That's what the water preaches. And so we teach our children that, are, that they need the blood of Jesus to wash off the stink of sin, the pollution of sin. And we teach our children these things. We teach them that they're covenant community members by virtue of our faith. But some point along the way, they have to put their own faith in Christ. And then when they do that, they are privileged to this table that we're about to have served to us today. Until then, our children have unfinished business with Jesus Christ. Those are the words of Matthew Henry. Unfinished business. This table is something that says Jesus is presenting this to you, to all his disciples who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so to all our dear covenant children, I call on you to put your faith and trust in the blood of Jesus that was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can participate in this meal with God's people. Until you do, it's going to sit there. Until you do, till you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's going to sit there and it's just going to keep preaching the body broken, preaching the blood poured out for your sins. And you have to take it. You have to take Jesus by faith first and then you can eat and drink with us at the table. Well, on the night Jesus was was betrayed, he did institute this supper that we're about to participate in. He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. He gave the bread and he gave the cup to his disciples. And they ate it and they drank. And as we study our Bibles, we know that they not only celebrated, they not only remembered, but they communed. They had fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so I invite you this morning Dear disciples, has God opened your heart the way He opened Lydia's heart? Does the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it resonating inside of you? Have you been marked by a confession of faith and baptism? Are you under this church's government or another church's government like it? Then I want you to come and eat and drink to your soul's enjoyment. The apostle reminds us to examine our hearts. And I would just say these words. You know, if you don't know what we're doing, that's okay. That's okay. You don't have to know everything. But I just ask you to think about what we've said today if you don't know what we're doing. And maybe talk to me, talk to one of our other men. We can talk about what it means to put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. But as the trays are passed, just watch what we do and don't take the elements. And today, so I would have you participate in that way. Think about Christ. And think about what it means to put your faith in Him. And talk to somebody who can help you if you need the help. But if you're here this morning and you're examining your hearts, who is this for? 
Is it not for people who love Christ? Is it not for people who need a righteousness that they cannot provide for themselves? Is this meal not for people who are in our passage, I didn't read it, who are beating their breast and saying, I'm not perfect, but I sure want to be. I want Christ to be my Savior. It's for those of you who need a Savior. So come to the table. Come and eat and drink to the satisfaction of your soul. Let's pray.